This episode is brought to you by Kettlebell Kickboxing Canada. Get into your best shape with their comprehensive programs. So sign up now to either their basic package or warrior package with the code PSPKB, all caps, for 15% off. Stay fit this winter with Kettlebell Kickboxing Canada. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Corbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world, covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters. I'm one half your host today, Justin Williams. And you know I'm never alone. I always got somebody with me because I have separation anxiety to the wazoo. Ladies and gentlemen, my company partner today is none other but the man, the myth, the legend, the man who has guided me throughout my life and existence and given me tips and things I didn't know I needed tips on. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Colbert Durand. Kobe? I'm good. How are you doing today? Oh, living the dream. And speaking of living the dream, we have our guest who uh, is doing what he loves, his passion, and he is really good at it. This guy comes from England, and I've heard him speak. He's a, a bit of an accent. I can't really tell if it's like north, south, east, or west. We're going to find out later on. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Joffy Holton. Joffy, how you doing? I am good. I'm good. How are you? It's uh, it's the Midlands, by the way, the accent. It's the Midlands. Midlands. I'm, uh, I'm fortunate to be like, I'm technically I'm West Midlands, but it's I'm the Midlands. I'm just in the middle of the country. And that's where like everything comes together, the melting pot of accents, is it? Uh, I, I w- that wouldn't be how I'd describe it. We've got the worst <laughs> accent, um, but we just accept it and move on. We're the bit where we don't really complain about anything. So like if it's too hot, we aren't too fussed. If it's too cold, we're not too fussed. It's all kind of the same for us. <laughs> I love it. I have a friend from uh, Northern Ireland, and your accent almost mirrors his, and it's blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say though, that intro was like the nicest. In- like you guys really care about each other. That was like the nicest intro ever. <laughs> so there was a, just to kind of like pull the curtain back a little bit. There was one. So Kobe and I like to riff against each other when we're on a podcast together. <laughs> So right. if we're on like, like a third person, like I say, you at a podcast, Kobe would be like, I fucking hate Justin. Like he's the actor. <laughs> <laughs> but like on the interviews together, we're, we're obviously friends. We're bros. I've been to him and his wife. Great guy. Like honestly, one of the, my favorite people on the face of this planet. But in front of people who aren't our guests, he's a complete asshole and I love him. <laughs> That's the kind of energy you need. That's how you know it's a friendship for life. Like any of my friends, they're not going to speak good about me when I'm not there. But when we're together, it's all good. Exactly. Oh, he pumps my tires too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it's not easy, right? It's not easy. There isn't much you can say good about Justin, but the things you can say good are impressive. That like that level of sarcasm is something that that like I don't really feel like uh, you know many American people really get like that. Oh, like, they don't. And 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 not to like not to knock anybody, but I've got a few American friends, and they just like one of my friends is a professor over in the states now, and he says like he can't be sarcastic anymore because people just don't get it. It's not the same. <laughs> it, it comes it comes off as as violent basically. Yeah, <laughs> like people will start getting mad at him, and I'm like, why? Like you're just you're having a bit of bants, like a little bit of. Bands and and it's just it's all taken wrong 
it is it, a lot of people are part of the snowflake generation unfortunately but uh, <laughs> oh, like i was born in the 90s started on that. i don't even get me started I, i'm like you i'm a 90s boy so i i'm not used to this and like it's it's like rife in this country like it's a real thing people have a serious issue with it well in in justin's other life he's a stand-up comedian I'm even worse when it comes down to it. He asked me if I wanted to do some stand-up with him, and I said I'm not even sure if I can get away with my kind of humor at this point. So <laughs> he really has to kind of go through his material and decide whether or not it's it's stage-worthy. Exactly. There's <laughs> there's a process. It's like I write a joke, and I'm like, okay, is this funny? Yes, but can I use it in North America? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> everybody's just too sensitive man like it's like you just got to chill out like take a step back from it all it doesn't need to be that that serious all the time honestly like so i said i was born in the 90s but i was raised in the 60s if that makes sense like my father gave me a birthday card one time which said one man's trash is another man's treasure by the way you're adopted like that's what i grew (laughs) up in so. that's like that's the best energy that's the best like i would love to receive that card but my dad doesn't send me cards he just ignores me instead oh that's true love <laughs> honestly yeah like my dad kind of has that bde energy so he's just like yeah yeah he walks around he's like hey you live here rent free i see there's snow in my driveway I'm like, <laughs> yes sir so. but anyways back to the interview um how did you get started in MMA? I'm very curious. Okay, so I've watched the UFC since I was like really, really young. So I was like, the first time I saw anything, I was probably like eight or nine years old with my uncle. The first real fights I remember watching was like Chuck Liddell. And I remember looking at Chuck going like, this is my guy. This is who I want to be. I want to have a mohawk. Somebody needs to tattoo something on the side of my head. I'm going to just roll my left arm out there and then just hit everybody with my right. Everyone's going to go unconscious. I'm going to be the best of all time. Then I saw Chuck got knocked out and I was like, maybe I'm not going to be Chuck because (laughs) Chuck got knocked out. It really hurt my soul. I remember when he did his comeback fight recently against Tito and I watched that fight and was like, oh, I can't ever watch this sport again because I can't stop crying. Um, so I remember watching this as, as a kid and I was desperate to go and train. So my mom put me in kickboxing Yep. for a little while. I would say no more than six months. I'm quite a high, well, I was quite a high energy child and I wasn't the most ruly, let's say. I was, oh. yeah, I was, I, I didn't have the discipline for it and I still don't have the discipline for it. I need to make that very clear. Um, <laughs> so I kind of got pulled out of that at a young age, kind of left it on left it on the back burner for a little while. Used to watch it with my friends all the time. One night we were at the casino and I was mm-hmm. talking the most reckless. I'd had a few, a few too many drinks. We were watching the fights and I was like, bro, I would stiff anybody. Like it's happening. I could show up and stiff anybody I want right now. Like I hit you, you're hitting the floor, that's it. So my friend was like, okay he he fought amateur at the time and he was like okay so come training monday so i was like okay whatever like if you want the smoke i can provide <laughs> I, I have this for you um my friend is at the time he was fighting at bantam so he fought like 135 but he was about 170 because he was like he used to make massive cuts he used to diet for a long time before his fights i at the time was uh i need to give you the conversion about 280 pounds you're huge okay yeah, I, was, I am not a small boy. I am not a, I've never been a small boy. And um, we, we went to training that night and he handed my ass to me. He gave me the <laughs> worst beating I've ever received. And you got 100 pounds on him. 
and, and I got a hundred pounds on it. Like he, he choked me multiple times, was piecing me up on the hands. And I remember going home and like, I got, I got into bed and I got all real comfortable with a hot drink. And I sat there and thought like that never, ever happens again. Because I don't know how it is for for you guys. Maybe it's slightly different because you guys can't drink to like twenty one. But like like you can go out in England from from eighteen. So I've been kind of going mm-hmm. out since I was like fifteen, sixteen, and drinking. I've been in fights on nights out, and what I would consider won those fights. Like I've come out the the better looking man, and I did that, and then realized how how badly somebody so so much smaller than me could hurt me. Right. And that was kind of it for me. I was like, that never happens again. And then I went back the next day and uh, like four and a bit years later, we're still going. I'll correct you. In Canada, the legal drinking age is 19. Unless you're in Quebec, then it's 18. Yeah, yeah we can. We drink before the, the Americans do. That's a, that's a really weird system. Like, okay, so everywhere else but Quebec is 19, but Quebec's 18. That's right. Yeah. The, the, the French, they like to get it on early. But legally <laughs> you can drink at home with your parents pretty much as early as you'd like yep. so depending on how you're brought up and my father is from the netherlands mother from jamaica and they don't really have drinking ages at all so i was early yeah. and then justin his dad's from newfoundland which are like the carnies of canada <laughs> so, <laughs> so they, yes. they drink very early as well so it's yeah like so we, we know what you're talking about super necessary like i i think drinking early was way better than if i would have discovered it at say 21 because at 21 i had money and money would have made a big difference (laughs) to how i would drink i bet 100 percent. i get it (laughs) now getting back to what originally got you into it the the whole session against your buddy did you end up joining his gym yeah we joined that gym it's run by, he used to be in the UFC, but I'd rather not mention his name because okay. he's not very good, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> Ross Poynton, if you guys remember, I think if I'm not mistaken, it was the Ultimate Fighter season three. Remember with Michael Bispin? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So he lost to Michael Bispin on that, on that season via, I'm going to go out and say flying knee. Because it's like the one time Bispin's ever flown a fly, uh, thrown a flying knee. And it's funny because Bispin already beat him in the UK at that stage. He also lost to, I want to say, Kendall Grove via rear naked choke. Going to put it out there if my memory serves me right. So we joined his gym and I live in Stoke-on-Trent. So Stoke-on-Trent is around 40 miles from everywhere. So it's like 45, 50 miles from Liverpool. It's 40 miles from Manchester. It's 40 miles from Birmingham. We are in the middle of everywhere. I trained with him for about six months, if that, and just thought, this guy isn't the one. So I spread my wings out, found my way to SPG in Manchester, where I've been for the past few years. That's been a good experience, but the coach there's leaving, so I'm in a position where I need to decide where I move from this point now, whether I stay where I am or uh, you know, I, I develop with a different team, and I think it's probably going to be the latter rather than the former. Right. Now, with that, would you ever come over to Canada or America to train? Yes, but I think you have to look at the viability of it for me. Right. I don't fight full-time yet, unfortunately. Like I still have a job because uh, I don't know how, how it pays over your side, but uh, professional ranks over here don't pay amazing. Early doors, you know, you've got to kind of make it to at least Bellator or the UFC on a, on a, on a contract. When I fought in Bellator, I had a, I had a one-fight deal. Um, and unfortunately lost had I won, you know, that that's where your deal kind of comes in. But anything other than those two in these regions, you ain't making money. 
you know, Cage Warriors is probably our biggest national promotion, and I would love to be on there. But I know from experience of my friends that fight on there that the money just isn't there at the level that you would hope mm-hmm. it would be. So I, I still work full time. So it's like finding that not only the time but also the funds to to make that happen. You know, I'd love to go and train in Thailand at somewhere like AK Thailand or or Tag and Muay Thai, but the viability of it, you have to. You have to weigh weigh it weigh it all out like the offsets because what are you going to gain from spending I don't know let's say five thousand on a camp and doing six you know six eight weeks over in the states or in Canada or in Thailand or whatever where mm-hmm. you now don't have that money to fall back on thereafter so if you lose your fight as an example after all of that and you only get half the wage we're looking at like what could essentially be a deficit in terms of the money. Can you develop those skills where you are? If you can still develop the skills where you are and you have the bodies to work with, then I don't really feel like you need to start running and escaping where you are. Of course, if you're in the UFC and you feel it's time to you know, jump ship, then of course go and do those things. But I think early level pros really need to have that understanding that you know you need to take the maximum you can get out of everybody that's around you, especially those that have already been there. That's what I was going to say. I know I've heard horror stories of people jumping from, I don't know, the UK and going to American Top Team and thinking like, this is my claim to fame. I get it. American Top Team is great, but they're not the greatest gym ever. They do well. They produce great athletes. I'm not getting you wrong, but there's other places people can go and venture. That's just about like surrounding yourself with, you know, the right variety of people, in my opinion. If you are all looking to to achieve the, the same things, then it doesn't matter where you are. It's going to work out. You know, there's there's plenty of people that could make it to, as an example, the UFC without ever being mm-hmm. in a big team. If you look at a lot of the a lot of the UK fighters, uh, well, quite a few, they aren't coming at all necessarily coming out of massive teams. Like, yeah, sure, Cowbonds really got a, a great name after all its all the other amateur fighters they had, and obviously the older guys that were there. But the only you know true name that they have, other than you know Till and Aspinall, and all that, like it's just Till and Aspinall these days. You've got Jack Shaw that's coming out of his own gym. You've got, you know, Mason Jones, who's, again, coming out of a gym, gym in Wales. In the UK, we aren't pumping as many stars out as, as the US are. So if people are thinking that they need to, to run off to these big camps to get to where you need to be, they just need to look at these guys that have made it there regardless. If you've got the right mm-hmm. work ethic, you're going to get to where you want to be. Personally, I'll jump in here. The advantage to being at a a well-established big gym like an American top team in, say, Florida or the Black Zillions or something like that. It really comes down to the number of quality opponents you have to spar with. That's the advantage, right? So let's say you're a middleweight and maybe at a small gym, there might only be one other middleweight of your caliber that you have to to roll with or to spar with. Whereas somewhere like a American top team, there might be 10 middleweights close enough to you in ability that you can sort of the whole, you know, iron hardens iron mentality. It gives you a chance to learn from and compare yourself to so you have a better understanding of where you're at. Definitely. That's the advantage to a big gym. But then the negative to a big gym is you're probably not getting as much one-on-one time with the top coaches. Of course. And I think more so than the one-on-one time is that you fall into this trap of being just a regular sized fish in a big pond. Yes. If you really, especially coming from what, in my opinion, coming from the UK, you need to be a standout in not only your gym, but on the UK scene. So you need to be the guy that you're knocking everybody out. You're choking everybody unconscious. Everybody's looking at you going, you are the boy. 
when are you coming stateside and when are you coming on the big shows? You can't do that if you're in one of those gyms where... Let me give you a scenario. So let's say Calvin are getting filmed by the UFC mm-hmm. whilst Darren Trill's tra- training for a camp. People are going to be looking at those heads and saying, like, who's working here? And if you're one of 30 lightweights that are there, how are we going to spot the boy? Do you know what I mean? You're just one one of many. Correct. If ever that call comes in like, hey, have you got a lightweight that we could push forward for a pullout that we've had really short notice? Well, I've got about 30. Yeah, it's a lottery then. Yeah, and I personally wouldn't want to be in a lottery system. Like, otherwise you end up like Dan Hooker and you can't go home. Um, I'm, I'm trying to make sure I can, <laughs> I can do what I want. Like, I'm trying to make sure if I'm the stud or like I'm like top two in my gym and there's five of us, then that's kind of where I should be. Equally, I, obviously, I want to be number one in the gym at all times. But how are you going to – I think if, if I was to, to jump into one of those big camps that, to kind of summarize the point I'm making, I think there is a potential that you would be lost just within the vastness of it. Yeah, understandable, understandable. And given that you started your training, I mean, other than the short stint you did uh, kickboxing, but you started in an MMA gym. Was there a primary discipline there or no? No, he was very all round, like that you need to kind of have a bit of everything. But I don't think the the correct mix was there in in what was going down in terms of how to transition between the two the two games. Because realistically, like MMA, to simplify it, is built in two parts, about three parts. It's built standing, it's built on the ground, and built on the transition in between. Mm-hmm. And I think you need like a, a good skill set in, in all three of those to be truly effective in what you're doing. And I don't think he was putting it together right. But, you know, it was, you make the best of a bad situation, you know, like you, you got to do what you got to do. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at pro.sports.podcasters for the most current sports news. Now back to the show. When you step into the ring, what is on your mind walking to it? And the second that bell starts. <laughs> Not a lot. There's like two kind of things that are going on for me so when i'm walking to the cage i'm I'm always walking to the same song so that's kind of like my reset of like okay this is what's going to go down now Mm -hmm. and at that point i'm just kind of thinking whatever the game plan that i've discussed has been i'm thinking this is how i feel what's going on in my body i always remember kobe bryant was talking after i think it was on the muse documentary he was talking about like how on a daily when he wakes up he does like a mental check of everything that's going on in his body like what feels good what doesn't what's tight what's loose what feels Mm -hmm. like it's good to go and as i'm walking that's generally what's going on in my head you know what's tight what's loose where do i feel like there's tension um and trying to make sure that i'm pretty Mm -hmm. relaxed at the point when I step in and obviously, you know, everybody else steps out, it's me, the other guy and, and the ref and they shut the cage door. At that point, like that's where I would say I get like this joyous feeling because I'm like, oh my God, like we, we've we waited for this for ages. We can go and play now. We get to go and play <laughs> and somebody else is going to have a really good time in here with me trying to fight me. And that's like the calmest I can be. Like at that point, I'm like, all the work's done. Let's just enjoy ourselves and have fun. And then regardless of the outcome, usually nine times out of ten, I've had a great time. I mean, I'm glad to hear that. I, I personally wouldn't think that if somebody's trying to punch me in the face. I wouldn't be like, this is going to be fun. Let's play. <laughs> I'd be like, eh, hopefully I look good for photos. <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. Like, if once you've been punched – so I, I'd say the first punch in every single fight is a bit like, oh, my God, he's actually just hit me. Because there's a, a vast difference between 
sparring and just actually getting in a fight. You know, I can be punching. Like, it's ridiculous, the difference. People people spar thinking, oh, my God, I'm ready to fight because <laughs> I've been hit in the face today and I took a couple body kicks and I am nice and I only got tapped four times rather than six, so I'm killing mm. it. And I'm like, well, that's, that's not really going to work for you because you need, if you got hit so many times in sparring, you're going to have to do something about that. Every time I get hit for the first time in a fight, I, I would say that's where like, it's like a double joy rush. So like I hit my joy rush when I'm like, oh my God, we're about to fight. And then I get hit and I'm like, yes, we're actually fighting. Like he's hit me for real. This is serious. Let's play. And then a bit of seriousness comes on and I'm like, okay, don't get too happy. Let's, let's, you know, let's try and do something about it. Uh, but yeah, it's like, there's a big difference between the two. I think it helps knowing that someone's trying to do this seriously. It kind of helps mm-hmm. me focus on performing because you can go into a spar and you can kind of um, like cruise control your way through it. Yeah. Just put it on, put it on auto and it's not really that big of a deal, but like you can't cruise control through a fight. Well, yeah, especially not because I feel like these people are legitimately trying to knock you out. Of course, everybody wants to put you on a highlight reel. That's exactly it. Not for the, the good reason. No one's like, hey, buddy, knock me out for your <laughs> highlight reel. It doesn't work that way. Honestly, it would make my life a lot easier if somebody would just turn around and be like, yo, can you just like knock me out really quick so that you can go on a highlight reel? Because I would be absolutely down for that. In the UK, we kind of have a system for that already. So okay. I don't know how it is with you guys over there, but there's like a lot of I think you got like you guys call them cans. There's a lot of cans in this in this like tomato cans. There's a lot of tomato cans in, yeah. in oh, okay. the UK scene. So <laughs> if you wanted to, for example, get somebody with like I'm not ashamed of my pro record. I'm one and two as a pro. But if you wanted somebody to like be built up very very quickly, you would just give them cans and, and field them out every two months. And then you see like guys like like I love MMA on point and. Their, their content. They I love do it that too. Extras one where they do a, <laughs> is it our Composer's Corner? Yeah, I love Composer's Corner. <laughs> and there is, there is some of those knockouts from the UK, which I know the fighters that were in there, or like I've met them and seen them around. Oh, and shit. I can promise you most faithfully, I don't know if the fighter knows what he's got to do. Like if the fighter's been informed that he's going to get, that he's going to knock somebody out. But um, the guy certainly knows he's going down. There was one not so long ago. I think it was a it was a head kick, and the guy like falls forward or something. And I remember yep. looking at it, going, "You all realize that if you get kicked in the head, the momentum's pushing you back no matter what. Yeah, like you're not yep. falling forward because that's not how gravity and that's not how balance works. <laughs> like your center of gravity is gonna is gonna send you backwards because of the momentum shift. Like regardless mm-hmm. of how you look at it. But hey, like that's if that's how people want to build their careers, that's fine. I'll I'll just take my time and do it the right way. That is hilarious. There's records out there that uh, of some of the UK guys that I do look at, and I'm like, oh, we all know better than this. Like, we all know Dude, better than this. Yeah, turn pro in 2021, they've got 12 fights. Like that, that kind of record. Yeah, there's, there's. <laughs> if you were to go on Tefology, you could like, and it's funny because people like Sheerdog used to be like a really, really legit website. And nobody yes. like uses Sheerdog as much over here anymore. So they all kind of use Tapology. And everybody runs around like, oh, this is my rank on Tapology. And you can see, like, if you look at the you can see the opponent's records on there. And it's it sometimes it's rather awkward to look at. Like I saw a guy on the weekend, I went to a I went to a show. I saw a guy on a weekend, and I promise you, he's got zero wins and more than forty losses. 
Really? Like zero wins and more than 40 losses. It's obscene. It was like, it was literally hard to, I'm looking at it going, this is, this can't, this surely can't be a thing. This surely can't <laughs> be a thing that you're letting this fight occur. But it occurs. It occurs. That seems like the Harlem Globetrotters versus the Generals. Eventually the Generals are going to win. I believe in it. <laughs> I oh, believe in it. You're that guy. You're you're that guy. <laughs> I just don't think that's going to occur for you because uh, it's not built like that. It's not built like that. It's it's funny because it's like there's some crazy ones out there. Like the the records on some of them. Like there's I know for a fact there's one. I think his name is his name is like Ben Schneider. I think his record's like three and twenty six as a pro, and he gets fed to debuts all the time. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's funny because he got fed to a debut this weekend, and I was watching. I was cage side watching with my friends. He got fed to a debut, and the debut illegally kneed him in the head. Really? Yeah, downed opponent, illegal knee. So I'm like, oh my god, he's gonna get the win. <laughs> he's gonna get the win. <laughs> yeah, like I'm, sh- I'm looking at my friends going, this guy's an idiot because he's just illegally kneed. He's like illegally kneed a guy in the face on a fight that he is guaranteed to win. Yeah. There is zero there's zero chance he doesn't win, and he illegally knees the guy in the face, right? So I'm watching this guy down, and the guy's like, oh, my head, oh, given the whole I'm knocked out thing. Yeah. The ref raises the hand of the guy that, that need him. And I'm like, what? This, this is this is how bad UK MMA, I don't care. I don't care if nobody in the UK ever signs me to fight again. I don't care. But this is how bad UK MMA is. The ref raises the hand of a guy that struck him with an illegal strike. Okay, because it calls it a TKO stoppage. And I'm like, so there's no scenario where this can be a TKO. Because if you ignore the Mm -hmm. fact that it's an illegal knee, then you have to allow the fight to continue. Because at no stage was this fighter unconscious. He was just on a knee and he should have been allowed to continue. And then obviously when he gets swarmed with ground and pound, then that's, that's the end of the fight. So it can't be a TKO because you've stopped the fight early in that instance. Because yeah. the, the guy was clearly not out. He was on his feet and actually complaining about the stoppage. Now, if you accept the fact that he threw the knee and you say it was an unintentional illegal strike, fantastic. The fighter needs to be allowed five minutes and to continue. But that didn't occur. If you accept the fact that it was illegal, then he should have been DQ'd. The only scenario that couldn't occur was him getting his hand raised, and he did. I just, oh, you can't make it up. It's fantastic. Yeah, but hold on. You have to account for the possibility that the referee is a bit of an idiot. Okay, so we're talking. You're talking about a smaller promotion, but if you look at, I think it's even. I think it was the last Bellator, where I'm trying to think of the two fighters that were involved, but it was it was in the most recent Bellator. A guy took a groin strike, Mm. and they stopped it to give him time to recover because he immediately he's like, oh god, and they both and even the other guy who hit him realized they both separate. So the referee is like, okay, get to your get to your corners, get to your corners, give you some time. A little bit of yeah. time passes, and then the referee went over to the guy who threw the strike and said, are you okay? And he said, yeah. You're good to go? He said, yeah. Then he went over to the other guy and said, okay, we're going. Be careful. <laughs> Watch your shots. And the guy had no choice, <laughs> even though he was still trying to get himself composed. He had no choice but then continue fighting at that point because the referee had mixed up who threw the strike. Yeah. That happened at a Bellator, right? That happened at a Bellator. We're not talking a small event here, right? So there are some questionable referee plays. I, I would agree, but the ref was discussing the fact, like he was discussing the fact with the guy that the knee was grounded. Okay, okay. He's on a knee. And like, you know what? Refs have got a hard job. But when you can see this conversation occurring, it is really, really hard to watch. Like really hard. To, it, it's The UK scene, is 
again, I'm not going to start start hating on anybody, but like the UK scene difficult enough as it is. You've got these cans that go out on, you know, they'll go out in, I don't know, say March and fight as a pro, but then come back in August and fight an army fight because they're getting mm. paid for this. Yeah, It's hard enough that we're having these and then not enforcing the rules. Like, oh my, just at least enforce the rule. If you turn around and you DQ that guy, and you turn around and go, you don't deserve the win because you illegally struck a, an opponent that was paid to win for you. That's how, that's how it should be. Yeah. Maybe that's just my opinion. I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. No, but I mean, it, it affects the the grand scheme of things as well. When you when you get into some of the larger promotions, and I mean, Justin and I, we, we bet MMA, okay? Yeah. Yes. We wager on it. We we give people advice on what to wager on. And one of the things I that always I hate seeing, and I see it all the time now, is somebody will get bumped up to one of the bigger promotions like a Bellator or UFC. It'll be one of their first fights in it. And you look at their record and they're 11-0. But then you look at the opponents they've faced and they're just mm-hmm. unknown, absolute nobodies. Yeah. But there's all this hype riding on them because they're 11-0. and And I mean, sometimes even Vegas doesn't know what to do. And they, they adjust the odds thinking, that, well, this guy is obviously undefeated. <laughs> and it's good for us because – Really, they're they're stepping into a, a promotion that they have no no business being in. Of course, right? And it's one of the things that we've actually discussed doing a a series on, which is total mismatches, but mm-hmm. at the highest level. I think yeah, it's difficult because like there's reasons why this is occurring. I think what Khabib did to the game leaving undefeated was something that people like look at now, and everyone's like, we've got to do this, but. That whole having an O next to your name holds way too much relevance for me. Way too much. Like I said, I've lost twice, and I've probably taken better things from each of my losses than anybody has from their 11 wins when they're undefeated. It's just, you're going to run into trouble at some stage. So I would rather run into trouble earlier than late. Like, my legacy will be so much better defined. That's why Anderson, for me, Anderson Silva's legacy is tarnished because he went on losses at the end and it's that primary recency effect people tend to remember the last things that you did true we, he should have he should have retired earlier when it comes right down yeah, it. He, he, should, he should have retired but to your point when it comes to the actual records and the validity of records and such and how important is an undefeated record it's fantastic to be undefeated i mean that's something you get to roll additional hype onto i think the the importance of records has been diminished as MMA has grown. So uh, the better your record was, you know, over a decade ago, that was different. And part of that was because everyone was sort of entering the top echelon on equal ground. Yeah. There wasn't nearly as many smaller promotions that were feeding into the big promotions. Quite often, most fighters would have anywhere between one and three amateur fights before they, they ended up in something like Bellator or UFC. <laughs> right yeah. you jump there quickly so at that point you're fighting guys that you're sort of on par with and if you can keep a close to undefeated record then it was a bigger deal now i think with the development of mma it's more likely you're going to see top fighters with a number of losses on their on their records it just happens to be that way if anything an undefeated record's a bit suspect yeah i mean i think for me all all undefeated records will be a bit suspect because people are going to go back and look at it. I think you need the learning experience personally 
you know, I see nothing wrong with having a few losses and then turning around and understanding that you've learned and developed from what's gone on here. For me, if you're always undefeated, you, you've never really learned anything. And I think some of the promotions out there, again, not to name names, but some of the promotions out there will take you way too early and throw you in at the deep end because they want to build somebody else. Because it's all about the build now. Mm-hmm. Everything's about the sale of it because MMA isn't like other sports. We will always be a business first. And that's largely because we don't have a governing body, in my opinion. So because it's it's very business driven, it's about building stars. You know, everybody wants the next Conor McGregor. Everybody wants to be the next Conor McGregor because they want that kind of money. Yeah. And that's totally understandable and totally okay. But then that for the guys that are trying to get up there that aren't quite there, that causes the other side of things where they aren't really getting the opportunity to, to work their way into it like they should. True. No, I, I, I fully agree with you there. It's, it's a very good point in that you've kind of got a balance between the money and the legitimacy, really, when it comes right down to it. And, and what, yeah. are you, what are you chasing, right? What, what do you want your legacy to be? Do you want it to be a stack of money or do you want it to be a legitimate star? Like it's, it's hard to say. I think you can get both, but you have to you have to have it right. Like I say, in terms of the UK, um, I know there's a lot of pro fighters that will not get paid for their first five, six, seven fights because if they don't get paid, they'll get an easy matchup and that easy matchup means they're going to go further. Yeah. It's it's this offset between do I make money now or do I make money later? Whereas like that shouldn't be how it is. The offset should be do I perform and can I compete? That should be it. Can I com- compete against these people or not? Yeah, true. I I agree with you fully. See, when I'm done, I just want to commentate. Like, I think commentary would be like the coolest thing ever. Just talking and giving your opinion on how people are fighting and what's going down. If you can understand this game, I think you're you're kind of onto a winner there. Like, I'd love to do that. I'd absolutely love to do that. Now, looking over your results, something Mm -hmm. that stands out to me is that the majority of your wins are by submission. Yeah, I've had a few, I think. Is that specifically something you you enjoy going for, or has it just been the situation in the fight? I remember the first submission I ever got was uh, an Americana from Top Mount, and on the way to the cage, in fact, it was it was sooner than that. It was about a week before. I was sat with my friends in my house, and we were talking, and everybody was saying, like, oh, so what are you going to do? Like, what's going to go on? I'm pretty blasé about everything. I was like, I'm going to throw it. I'm going to go in. I'm going to throw a really shitty one-two. I'm going to attach myself to his leg. I'm going to take him down. I'm going to take Mount, and then I'm going to Americana him. And <laughs> you, I was just called like, it to a T, <laughs> to a T, to the stage where the the one two that I threw was the shittiest one two you've ever seen. <laughs> like there was there was no intention to land. It just needed to look aggressive and big. Yeah. Like my mentality was like, so Khabib was wrestling bears, but I've got a bear mentality. I just need to look bigger than you to scare you. That's it. So I remember doing that, and that was kind of I really liked jujitsu. When I started jiu-jitsu, it was like everything to me. Um, not so much now. I think like it was my, my obsession with jiu-jitsu stopped me being as well-rounded as I, I would have liked. But I really, really cared about the minute details of jiu-jitsu. And I think that's just kind of what happened. I find a lot of the times with MMA, if you happen to catch something or catch a hold of something, can nine times out of 10 be on very, very quickly. Not so much with chokes, but definitely with like your arm and leg locks. Mm-hmm. Um, leg locks, there's a lot more power to people. So explosive escapes can occur. Yeah. However, when it comes to isolating an arm, once it's isolated, you're pretty much away. 
I'd tell everybody to steer away from straight arm bars because I think that's where escapes really start coming. And if you've got somebody like Tony Ferguson, they're just going to grit it out. But yeah. like, you're not going to grit out a Kimura because I will, I will remove your arm from your shoulder socket. Like, I don't care. Yeah, that's gross. Sorry. <laughs> so good. I've had a dislocated shoulder one time and I'm like, Mm-mm, not at all. They're not ideal. I think uh, I dislocated the guy's shoulder, the first Americano I applied, but that was, again, his fault. You should have tapped sooner. <laughs> oh. it's true it's true it, it, it is don't get me wrong but it's like oh it's like with um what was that the tony ferguson versus charles Oliveira fight when Oliveira yeah. almost broke ferguson's arm and ferguson went tap and even Oliveira looked at the ref like dude i can see his elbow and he's like it's not tapping that's the thing with a guy like tony ferguson you have to like reevaluate the way you're going to go about this because tony is never going to tap to something that just breaks a bone if you're going to beat him you need to put him unconscious in some kind of way. He's never yeah. going to just turn around and go, yeah, that's fine, I lost. You know? Mm-hmm. He won't quit on it. He needs to be made to be removed from there for his own safety. And they're never going to do that with um, they're never going to do that with arm bars. Unless they hear a pop and they like you can see like when Frank Mir uh, broke. Oh yeah, Snapsky. Yeah, when, when that arm was like full on broken. Yeah. <laughs> Unless that occurs, you're, they're not going to do it in modern day MMA. Because there's the problem with submissions, especially like your joint locks, is that whole going out on your shield thing, I find is still, it's very, very relevant. You know, they will let it break before they get you out of there. No ref will stop it early because of a tight submission. It just won't happen. Mm-hmm. We hope you enjoyed the episode, but for more of our interview with Joffe Holton, which just went way off the rails, was supposed to be a 45-minute interview, ended up being two and a half hours, be sure to follow us on all of our social media channels, especially our Instagram, and we will have some additional bonus content coming on the podcast, so be sure to follow us on whichever podcast platform you use. See you next time.